0: Musical,
1: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I introduce today's program, I first want to thank Mac and Marcella for yet another donation to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. I really appreciate your help and uh, that of all of our other donors these past years, because that's what keeps us keeping on. Now, for today's podcast, guess what? I've come across a few more Terrence McKenna tapes and, uh, well, I thought that it'd be fun to end the year with a few more of his talks. This one uh, seems to have been recorded with the microphone volume turned up a little bit high, but since I haven't been able to find this particular talk anywhere else in the net, uh, well, I thought that we should preserve it here. The label on the tape says that the title of the talk is Bosch and Yates on Parade, and when I searched on that title in quotes, there were no hits, so, well, I guess this should be new to most of us. Now, I have to admit that at first this talk didn't grip me like many of Terence's talks do, but that's because I know next to nothing about art. As an undergrad in college, I studied electrical engineering, and in grad school I studied law. So I was trained to be an engineer and a lawyer, but I don't feel like I was educated in any meaningful way. Basically, uh, well, I've always done a lot of reading, and so I consider myself to mainly be self-educated. That said, I've done nothing to educate myself about art. (laughs) But as I listened to Terence talk about Bosch's painting, The Garden of Earthly Delights, I brought up a copy of it on my computer so that I could follow along with what he was describing. And if, uh, like me, you don't have a lot of art education... I highly recommend doing the same thing. In today's program notes, I've included a copy of that painting, and if you uh, click on it, you'll get a larger copy that you can even enlarge more and scroll around on. And you'll find that in today's program notes at psychedelicsalon.com. Now, here is Terrence McKenna on an August evening near Big Sur, closing out his monthly residency at Esalen back in 1993.
0: This is the last of uh, what turned out to be five lectures, if we include Brother David's dialogue or our joint offering a few nights ago. The the last of five lectures comprising my um, scholarship in residence at Esalen this year. It seems as though the theme sort of naturally solidified around... uh, the idea of final things, the eschaton, I mean from Finnegan's Wake through the time wave to the f- discussion of the fourth chapter of Daniel. I did notice that um, all of these meetings seemed to be about the end and final things, but in rather light-hearted and non-morbid uh, approaches. I mean, I consider Finnegan's Wake a delightful thing to discuss. The time wave appeals to my ego, so forth and so on. It was not a gloomy discussion of final time and things. What I thought of doing tonight, if it was a small group, possibly, was... uh, discussing two poems by Yeats which deal with final things. And then the thing which broke down our effort to talk about Bosch was that we didn't have an overhead projector. And I thought if the group was small enough, we could... How many people are familiar with Hieronymus Bosch? Not so many people. This guy didn't make it into the top ten. Uh... Because he deals also with uh, a whole bunch of themes that we've been talking about. First of all, this painting, which is the only one we would discuss simply very large blow-ups of of sections of his most famous work, uh, deals apparently or ostensibly with paradise with some other dimension, possibly beyond death, or possibly drug-induced. It's not clear. We don't have much of a context uh, uh, for Bosch. And what has always attracted me to him is that uh, he's a cemetery splitter. I mean, Bosch is almost impossible, and yet w- weirdly conservative at that. I mean, what you have in Bosch is a kind of uh, fossilization of the late medieval mind, its obsessions, its symbolic associations, many now lost, except to Chaucer scholars and medievalists. And yet so so the content of all these bizarre juxtapositions of symbolic animals and so forth is thoroughly medieval. But the overall impression is one of extraordinary radicalism of thought. I mean, this is a window into either the functioning belief system of a heretical sect or... a very radical and peculiar notion of paradise, certainly no Christian paradise, judging by the amount of hanky-panky going on, Uh, and uh, a curious creation scene. It's a triptych, you see, so it opens up. A curious creation scene that's ambiguous, then a paradise also ambiguous, and then a fairly horrendous hellscape that appears unambiguously designed to provoke a cautionary response um, toward life's pleasures in the viewer. Um, okay, let me get into this. The tack that I wanted to take with this is um, uh, sort of a sensual art-historical aesthetically driven, tactile, psychedelic approach this evening, simply because this is what the sources are going to offer. So rather than formal mathematical models of history or the grim uh, moral casuistry that leads us in and out of uh, uh, deserving an apocalypse, I thought I would just talk about this feeling which has always pervaded this idea. And strangely enough, it's, um it's a feeling of, uh, sensual overload, lassitude, concupiscencia, a kind of long, golden, hashish-lit afternoon of the mind seems to pervade this idea complex, the idea of, uh, the eschaton conceived of as, uh, paradise, and the end of history conceived of as metamorphosis, crisis, and, uh, transition. So I thought to begin by reading a very short, well-known, and simple, actually, poem of uh Yeats, because it's it, almost every schoolchild knows this poem, and yet exactly what it's talking about is fairly ambiguous, although I think the the tone of eschatological menace is fairly clear uh This is from the second coming, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the Falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming... Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The drop, the darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. You all know this poem, in some form or another. So, Um, you know, just to get the referential crap all out of the way, obviously this poem is operating under the shadow of Shelley's poem, Ozymandias. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, and all about the desert wreck. You know this poem, right? Uh... So it's operating in the light of that same feeling, but where what we get out of Shelley is an archaeological site, a shattered wreck. What we get out of Yeats is something much darker and more menacing, something Lovecraftian, something old, something alive, and something on the move. This rough beast that now slouches toward Bethlehem uh, to be born... This poem was published uh, very much under the influence of the events of World War I uh, and uh, is more prescient with each day. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. This is the feeling of the 20th century, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the best like all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity. This is a fairly dark vision out of Yeats, um, and he hooks it up to... I mean, obviously, the image that is invoked is that of the Sphinx. That is this lion-headed thing in the desert, but... The implication is, I think, that this is the birth of the beast of the apocalypse. This is the second-headed, I mean, I'm sorry, this is the seven-headed lamb of the revelation of John of Patmos. So, I wanted to go through that, and then I wanted to read, and this will lead us into Bosch, a somewhat different take or maybe a different take on an entirely different subject. But to my mind, these two poems are clearly connected. Uh, the first one is about the second coming, this peculiar entry of God into history that we talked about in relationship to the eschaton. Uh, this second poem, nearly equally short, is much more complicated and seems to deal with... Uh, the after-death state and the theme of paradise and a theme relative to the survival after death that we've talked about here many times, which is the transformation of human beings into uh, machines, a kind of organo-mechanistic uh, fate that seems to lie ahead in the historical continuum. This poem, um, well, let me read it, then we'll talk about it. It's fairly straightforward as well. Sailing to Byzantium, one, that is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations, at their song the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl commend all summer long. Whatever is begotten, born, and dies, Caught in that sensual music all neglect Monuments of unaging intellect. Two. An aged man is but a paltry thing, A tattered coat upon a stick, Unless soul clap its hands and sing, And louder sing, For every tatter in its mortal dress, Nor is there singing school, But studying monuments of its own magnificence, and therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. 3. O sages standing in God's holy fire, as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from the holy fire, pern in a gyre, and be the singing masters of my soul. Consume my heart away, sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal, it knows not what it is, and gather me into the artifice of eternity. 4. Once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered hammered gold and gold enamelling to keep a drowsy emperor awake or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past, or passing, or to come. To me, the interesting part about all this, um, this whole first business is pretty straightforward. Well, let's talk about the first one, though, because this we will meet in, in Bosch. That is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song, the salmon falls. This is a literal description of the Garden of Earthly Delights. There are no young. People are literally falling in each other's arms. All kinds of sexual preferences are being expressed, and people are completely incongruously wandering through a world of enormous birds, finches, starlings, and tropical birds of some sort. Uh, Fish, flesh, or fowl commend all summer long whatever is begotten, born, and dies. Caught in the sensual music of all neglect. Caught in the sensual music all neglect. Monuments of unaging intellect. So it's a picture of sensual... Lassitude and fin de siecle decadence, and uh, it's almost a uh, it's almost a narcotic sensuality that comes out of these images. Then the next section is typical Yeats: an aged man is but a paltry thing. It's invoking the transience of the body and all that. But then the last two sections where. Assuming that we are now in the after-death state, which for him is the holy city of Byzantium, then the last line of, the last two lines of part three, it knows not what it is. Speaking of, of the soul, it's fastened to a dying animal, it knows not what it is. And gather me into the artifice of eternity. This is what I wanted to get to. The artifice of eternity is an extraordinarily peculiar concept, uh, Western, kept alive, uh, present in Bosch, in the strange uh, mechanical devices and towers that we'll see here, but in the Artifice of Eternity. And then the entire fourth section uh, adumbrates this concept brilliantly, Uh, And, you know, in, what is it, what have we got here, eight lines, uh, seven lines, I think it gets it better than just about anybody ever did. Once out of nature, meaning quite simply once dead, once out of nature I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing. But such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enameling to keep a drowsy emperor awake or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or to come. It's a weird image. He's saying once out of nature, he would, he would take the form of a mechanical bird that a toy to amuse the emperor, to invoke a sense of eternity in the courtly life of this Byzantine paradise that he imagines. It's a very explicit and very early image of what in Finnegan's Wake we get, where he says, man will be dirigible. You know, This is now how Joyce does it only 11 years later. We go from I would be a thing of gold and gold enameling to man will be dirigible, but it's this same thing. It's the anticipation of the cyber, cyborg mechanical uh, apotheosis that um, is somehow sensed to lie ahead, and yet it's very psychedelic. It's very DMT-like, uh, this uh, uh, idea of being, uh, well, the the beginning parts of beginning lines of part three sages standing in God's holy fire as in the gold mosaic of a wall is an extraordinary image of uh, of shamanic. uh, transcendentalism, contact, connection, come from the holy fire, turn in a gyre, that's a special vocabulary of Yeats, it means simply turn in a spiral, and be the singing masters of my soul. So, um, th- this kind of thing, coming out of Yeats, is a product of what's called the Celtic revival, and in a sense, the last gasp of... Uh, a certain kind of romantic attitude toward these images. And, you know, in spite of the attractiveness of this, it is incredibly recidivist. I mean, uh, you know, Yeats was associated with the Pre-Raphaelites. Well, when you stand in, for example, the Tate and look at the Pre-Raphaelites and realize that Manet was painting at the very same moment... Then you realize that for all its, its illustrative beauty and opalescent, uh, beguilement, it's very, uh, it's very conservative. It's very, uh, set against the strain of modernity. Uh, it's the last of a whole, uh, tradition of romanticizing these febrile and paradisical and um, hallucinatory states. It reaches back into people like uh, Redon and Gustave Moreau, French symbolist painters of the 19th century. You see this in Turner, in uh, paintings of Turner's, uh, such as uh, The Decline of Carthage, you see this this twilight lassitude in the midst of incredible imperial opulence and sensual excess and exotic. I mean, in a sense, I mean Bosch, Bosch's dates are fourteen fifty uh, I'm sorry, yes, fourteen fifty to fifteen sixteen. and this painting arguably could have been painted while America was being discovered. We don't know the exact dates of the painting of the Garden of Earthly Delights, but if Bosch was born in 1450, then he would have been 42 in 1492. He would have been at the height of his artistic uh, power, so it's also, it's a prophetic painting, You know, in this depiction of overflowing pagan nakedness and exotic flora and strange animals, it is in fact, you know, a photograph of the European mind at this extraordinary uh, moment when the second half of the planet swims into their tin. And it's a moment not unlike uh, our own moment, it's it's a moment when literally new worlds beckoned. Uh remember I when we read from Finnegan's Wake, I said that the first page of the wake was evocative of the close triptych of the Garden of Earthly Delights. Here it is, it's hard to see, it's designed to be hard to see. It's basically a cloudy, opaque, swirling look into an alchemical retort it's uh colourless and chaotic and primordial it's the moment before the drama of uh, of creation is set in uh, in motion. It has to be said, you know we have no interpretation of Bosch; he's been much fought over uh William Franger, who was an art historian. Argued, I thought persuasively in a book called The Millennium of Hieronymus Bosch, that Bosch was probably an Adamite, a member of a sect of heterodox Christians that practiced ritual nudity, a sect particularly associated for some reason with printers and families of printers. Only the bizarreness of the content of the work gives any uh, support for these kind of speculations. We possess no writings by or about Bosch. The conventions that he developed to um, portray infernal regions, you know, fish mouths, vomiting souls, biomechanical creatures, graphic piercing, Uh, all of this was then developed into a whole school of apocalyptic portrayal. The most famous student, not student directly, but the most famous um, uh, later painter influenced by Bach or uh, Bosch, uh, not a painter, but in, well, a painter. But in this case, in, in his etchings, was Peter Bruegel the Elder, who did a series of uh, of uh, seven deadly sins that are. Uh, uh, you can't tell whether what you see in Bosch is supposed to horrify or delight you. Bruegel is pretty explicitly horrific. Uh, these strange vegetable forms and animals fill this painting. One of the odd things about this painting that I've never heard any art historian discuss is there there are human beings with wings, and there are human beings riding cats, and there are human beings carrying strawberries around on their back. When you actually try to cast your mind into this painting, there's a bizarre confusion of scale. None of the people portrayed in this painting seem to be anywhere close to full size. Possibly it's uh, it's a kind of fairyland. Uh, we have been uh, conditioned by Disney to overstress the cute in fairies. Uh, fairies are actually fairly peculiar and ambiguous entities to deal with. This may picture a kind of late Flemish Uh, recrudescence of the Celtic faith, something like that. I mean, it's pretty wide open for speculation. After all, we're looking at something uh, pretty peculiar here. Of course, drugs have been brought forward as a suggestion. I'm always an enthusiast for pharmacological explanations, but in this case the material is not really there to support a drug hypothesis. I mean, what drug? There is one very suggestive uh, panel because this object might very well be the seed capsule of Datura stramonium, which would have implicated Bosch in some kind of a, of a Datura cult. And this was a plant known to European witchcraft, and there is a fairly rich literature about it. Uh, the toad here accompanying the motif of magical flight suggests the possibility. And it's interesting. This particular panel is the extreme left upper section of the main panel of the Garden of Earthly Delights. And here we have the Jimsonweed seed capsule. The toad, although for medieval symbolism, this is the female genitalia always. But also, look at this mushroom here. This is quite uh, distinctive. And uh, if you were to read the Garden of Earthly Delights as a text with the conventions of English, you would start reading it in the upper left corner. So it's interesting that in the upper left corner, we immediately meet these symbols, but outside of this, there is no uh, particular evidence uh, of mushroom use. Uh, these things are fantastic. I mean, if you if you're familiar with the canon of imagery of the middle 1500s, and then you come upon Bosch, I mean, if it's startling to us, you can barely conceive of the effect. That it had on its viewers uh, in in the 1490s uh, or around 1500. These it's hard for you to know. I see. I know, but these substances are clearly polished stones, and in some cases, glass tubing is very prominent. And uh, these things are uh, incredibly imaginative in the context of the late medieval imagination. And what we're looking at is uh, architectural structures that are in the distance of a paradisical landscape. Everyone is naked. 95% of everybody is totally naked. And they seem to be engaged in various forms of uh, erotic play and aimless, wandering around. They are, you know, knitting flowers into necklaces, sitting, conversing, and there are these peculiar mer-knights, or mer-robots, mer-men, with, whose upper torsos are armored, and uh, they seem to inhabit lakes in this region. Here's a group of people gathered around a giant strawberry, uh, people marching into this egg, a mer-woman making love with a man here, more of these mer-night bots uh parading around, gazelles, all kinds of exotic animals. Porcupines, finches, birds, people of all races, many black people, men and women portrayed, interracial sexual activity is uh, going on, feats of acrobatics, all kinds of horsing around with birds. There's a lot of birds in this painting. If anybody has any questions, feel free. I basically just want you to have a feeling for how exotic this is. And in the absence of... Any knowledge of 15th, of, uh, you know, Renaissance painting, uh. Yes, here's a unicorn. What did you ask about it? What, what symbol was that? Well, when you go into the symbolism, uh, Bosch is, is just, uh, an encyclopedia of late medieval symbolism. Most of it can be sussed out. It's conventional. Some of it doesn't make any sense at all. The the thing most startling about this is the absolute absence of Christian morality or modesty or any notion of of Western European social mores of the day, and and yet it does not seem to be purient either. Uh, this is why the theory was advanced that these Adamites were using it as an altar piece. Now, Bosch's other paintings are bizarre, there's no doubt about it, but, uh, here he outdid himself. People riding on giant birds, glass helmets, uh, people carrying a, f- a flag with a porcupine on it, people, yes, all, a lot of these animal symbols relate to medieval allegories that made, that to the medieval viewer made perfect sense. This was all Pretty much on the surface. Here's a civet cat being ridden. Um. Hey, why, why do you say that that's not? Well, there's just no, uh, first of all, if you take Datura, which is actually portrayed here, this isn't exactly where you would end up. I mean, this is not no de Tura vision I've ever heard of. Uh, this, given that it's 1492, I don't know, could hashish do this to you? It's a fascinating question. Um, the question of how much the content of one's psychedelic experience is a reflection of one's position in history. In other words, when I take psilocybin, I see enormous machines in orbit around the planet and all kinds of servo-mechanical, machined, high-tech stuff. Well, would it what would a person in eighteen twenty have seen? Would they have seen visions of the steam engine visions of pistons and sliding mechanism what is our what exactly is going on there between the collectivity as an expression of techne and the mind of uh, of the perceiver? This is very interesting I mean if this is a drug vision then it's a wonderful fossilization of the late medieval imagination. Now, the whole period from roughly the invention of printing in 1440, ten years before Bosch's birth, to the Thirty Years' War in 1619, is, we talked about this, this era that I'm calling the Age of the Marvelous, when the European mind just went absolutely nuts for the Baroque, the peculiar, the exotic, the Byzantine, the specific, fossils, butterflies, birds of paradise, detritus from the Greco Roman civilizations, obelisks, scarabs, alchemical procedures. It, they, this is the era of the Rudolphine court in Prague and uh, uh, the great era of the Wunnerkammer of Europe when. Before Linnaeus and scientific classification of objects, all kinds of strange exotica were just collected together by uh, very wealthy people. Now, the Italian Renaissance is raging at the very moment that this is going on, but the news has not yet reached Flanders. The Northern Renaissance is going to come along in Bosch's later years and toward the end of his life. This does not show any of the concerns or conceits or clichés of of uh, Renaissance painting, Italian Renaissance painting, even some of the more exotic stuff. No, we, we know surprisingly a little about him. We know his date of birth because it's in the parish register of the village of, Parentheses, and Bosch some wide place in the road in Flanders. Uh, we know that he made a trip to Rome late in life and that he viewed the Titians. We know this from uh, a letter. He did etchings, uh, engravings. He did a, a, got a um, Seven Deadly Sins... But mostly what he's known for are a very small number of paintings. Uh, the most extravagantly imaginative being the Garden of Earthly Delights. Uh, uh, there's the Haywain Triptych, another huge painting that depicts a hay wagon, uh, but it's the world as allegory. And all kinds of bizarre symbolism is going on. It's the Ship of Fools theme. And he, in fact, did a Ship of Fools. Uh, Ship of Fools was, is a trope of late medieval literature. Sebastian Brandt, uh, being one of the great expositors of that theme. Much of this, this is like Finnegan's Wake, you know, the best art historians can take you through some of it. Telling you what they know, but a huge residuum is left over under the category, anybody's guess. You know, I mean, and yet Bosch, by virtue of the length of his career, and the fact that these paintings have survived, and that they were very large paintings, they must have commanded a fair price even at that time, surely then he was not a pathological personality, or a nut. Of some sort, he was a very respected painter who carried on a career that stretched over forty years, and his paintings ended up in some of the great houses of Europe. Here's a person inside a mussel shell uh, with a pearl between their legs. Though this is a famous one, uh, this gentleman has placed a bouquet of flowers up his uh, anus. We just don't see that much in uh, medieval painting. In fact, I believe that's the unique, the single instance. Uh, and more malarkey and carrying on here. And what's interesting is that these kinds of structures are not really identifiable. They don't, they are not botanical. They are not architectonic. They can't be traced to earlier conceits by other painters. Uh, we just don't have a clue. I wanted to get to this one because this is a very controversial panel. First of all, this bizarre object, which appears to be transparent, we can see this woman through it. This man is pointing to her. He is the only person out of several hundred figures who is clothed. It's in a very unobtrusive part of the painting, if you see the whole thing. It's thought to be a self-portrait. It's, it's his little cameo. Appearance. So, and in, if true, then he looks to be a man of perhaps 30. So, uh, we're talking 1480, 1485, something like that. And then, other people's favorite, not mine, but in fitting with our theme, uh, the central panel is, as we've seen, this garden of earthly delights, this paradise, or if it's a hell, a very strange hell, uh, but the, the right side is an unambiguous inferno, a scene of, of fire and ice where lost souls are being tortured and tormented in countless ways. And, uh, but this is the great prophetic vision of Bosch. I mean, this is Bosch anticipating the 20th century. This is Dresden. This is Berlin. This is Coventry. This is Saigon. This is all the places hammered to pieces by aerial bombing in the 20th century. It's an extraordinary thing. This, and this is just a section, uh, this is the high background, but quite, quite dramatic, very modern, very impressionistic. I mean, it's uh, as dramatic as any art of this sort done in this century. Here's more of this. He invented this, The bombed-out landscape with bonfires, refugees, shattered structures, busted up military equipment, Uh, it was early for this. I mean, the Thirty Years' War lay quite some time in the future. This is really coming out of the Middle Ages. But these night-lit landscapes of flame, suffering, and ice, and then these very, very surreal... Um, uh, sadomasochistic uh, scenarios of torture going on. We're getting the dropping down into it now and you can begin to see there are all these demons and they are uh, tormenting people for various sins in various ways. And here is where a student of Dante or something like that can step in and interpret and tell you what all these sins are that are being... Uh, being dealt with. Actually, some of this is quite horrifying. The body piercing here, or these hyena-like creatures feeding on this night, or this strange moth-winged creature piercing this person. Uh, dead tree creatures and human tree amalgams are typical of Bosch and were carried over into Bruegel. Um, the whole thing is called the Garden of Earthly Delights Triptych. And we're looking now at the Inferno section. Very dark, all done in black. A strange pictorial space that cascades over the painting surface. It's um, It pictures a world of ice. It's like a river, a frozen river at night. There's a lot of sleds and skating going on. Here you see them. Sleds that have crashed through the black ice. So it's a combination of all kinds of different forms of discomfort. Um, here's someone spitted on the strings of a musical instrument, and incongruously, in this hell, musical instruments figure very prominently bagpipes, uh, lyre, uh, um, lute and uh, whatever this thing is, I'm not sure. And here's someone striking a tambourine. I think, and there are drums as well. I think the idea is, among others, obviously, that it's an extraordinarily cacophonous place. It's full of noise and explosions and dissonance. And here is the central protagonist, who is assumed, although it's a Curious portrayal without precedent, assumed to be Satan, who wears a chamber pot on his head, and he's sitting on a, on a commode, he's sitting on a, on a toilet, and he's eating people one by one, in the midst of all of this horrendous going on. Uh, we'll get back to him in a minute. This is an interesting section here, not sure what's going on. This person has musical notes either tattooed on their bottom or, I don't know, being projected. And, uh, this woman who probably, uh, represents a prostitute, the dice, because of the rabbit, the dice on her head, all of this is, a, one of these memory juxtapositions from the Ars Memoria. To uh, associate a whole bunch of uh, various themes with the theme of gambling and uh, and prostitution, notice the prominence of blades and knives. This demon holds a backgammon board with three dice on it there uh, and then I wanted to show you this is the bottom half of the privy on which Satan sits and It's not clear exactly what this is in the most disgusting interpretation. It was imagined to actually be his uh, lower colon sticking through this thing. And these people are being excreted into this toilet hole. People are also shitting money into the toilet hole and vomiting. And here you see a woman with a toad on her chest... Uh, being embraced by a demon and also being reflected in a parabolic mirror that is on the rear end of this other demon. It's bizarre that Bosch's imagination seemed to be equally at home uh, with the sublime and the horrible. I mean, he portrays it all with this curiously neutral hand. This is not sensationalistic. I mean, it's sensational. But it's not prurient. It's not erotically driven. It's not appealing to, uh, some base drive in the viewer. It's just simply pictorial and representational. Similarly, the, the paradise scenes are frankly erotic, but not Explicitly so, and certainly not pornographic. It's a very gentle eye. I mean, you get the feeling that you could have cut a deal with this guy. Strange piece of symbolism here. The hand with the dice nailed by the knife to the plate, and this curious creature holding this man down. Well... That's enough of that. I just wanted to go through it. I didn't want to lecture entirely on Hieronymus Bosch, but I wanted to draw the point that this imaging of a, of a trans-historical future has been going on for a long, long time in the West. We listened the other night to the fourth chapter of Daniel and Brother David, Read it. We have talked about the apocalypse of John of Patmos, uh, Hieronymus Bosch, Sailing to Byzantium, Finnegan's Wake, um, all of these efforts to give a feeling-tone picture to this trans-historical state that in many of our efforts to talk about it, we've tried to talk about it theoretically, tried to talk about it doctrinally, even mathematically, but not to try to understand the feeling. And the feeling, I think, is one of uh, complex unification. Uh, the, the world is like a thousand museums all flowing together. History is redeemed uh, in the present moment, uh, presumably, uh, by being brought to a kind of a crescendo of association. That's why all of these works of art that we studied, uh, a, um, general characteristic was baroque complexity. These are not minimalist works. We're not moving here in the realm of uh, the sound of one hand clapping. We're moving in the... A realm of incredible efflorescence of detail, uh, resonance, adumbration, allegorical reference, precursive anticipation, all the tricks are, are being used. The 20th century, uh, is like that and therefore illuminated, uh, by this kind of thing. The, the 20th century, like the 16th, is a century of enormous transition. I mean, forever behind us is uh, the gentlemanly world of well-regulated commerce and industry of the 19th century, and ahead of us lies God knows what. I mean, either extinction or some kind of radical transformation which could leave your grandchildren looking like office machines. So uh, the 20th century is a century without bearing, the way the, the 16th was, and of course the, way the how this settled out for the 16th century, was that the Thirty Years' War was fought in the first half of the 17th century, and uh, the medieval structures were swept away, nothing was left. In a sense, the apocalypse anticipated by the medieval eschaton actually occurred, but it occurred over a hundred years, and slowly, and when it was finished, the, the conceits of medieval civilization had been completely swept away. And where there had been popes and kings, there were suddenly parliaments and peoples. Uh, our situation is probably much more radical, and uh, so I think it's worthwhile to draw you know, to look back at prophets, essentially. And of course, somebody that we didn't go into because he rates his own, uh, slot, if not course, was William Blake, who saw all of this, who, who saw what science meant, who wrote about the dark satanic mill, who wrote about the prophecy of America, and who saw, you know, that, uh, history was a kind of distillation of um, apocalyptic dreaming. And it still very much is. It is more than ever. I mean, with virtual reality, uh, psychedelic drugs, you know, digital everything, uh, our dreams are more and more becoming uh, the stuff of the cultural medium of exchange. This is necessary. I mean, we have to switch from stuff to dreams, but we also have to deal dreams uh, that can be fulfilled. I think I said the other night. I can remember who I said what to, but talking about how after the fall of after the defeat of Germany in World War Two, the prevailing social experiment, which had been underway in the United States, was the New Deal. And people just wanted to return to normal. I mean, it was called, you know, the return to normalcy. Get married, get a house in the valley, have some kids, work at the aircraft factory. That was the plan. And the expectation for a kind of a millennium a secular millennium, the expectation that American life would deliver everyone into uh, the hand arms of plenty, in order to meet that, a kind of ersatz paradise, or a kind of, uh, of pseudo-eschatology was created out of stucco and suburbs and mall culture and TV... And packaged food and uh, uh, mass uh, marketing of products it, it was essentially paradise on the cheap but it it shows that this drive for this level of uh, of completion remains uh, remains very strong in people I mean this is what we what we want we want the earth to be a place of leisure and plenty and uh, a natural theater for the reflection of natural erotic impulse. This is, a, you know, a vision deeper than romanticism, deeper than classicism. It's part of this impulse back to the archaic that I talk about. And uh, you know, if you had to have a virtual reality, Bosch would be a good blueprint to to begin from. The sensibility seems to be uh, right. Well, anybody have anything to say about that or anything else? Could you view uh, Bosch like a, a seer, like Musetta, or something? Well, in a sense, a, a more interesting seer because less specific, more general. Yeah, I mean, I view it as prophetic painting. I, I don't know. You know, we can't. Talk to Bosch, so we don't know how he viewed it. Some art historians have seen him as incredibly conservative, backward-looking, reflecting the medieval world. But uh, I view it as very prophetic of the of the twentieth century.
1: That, you know, those images aren't that unlike the bizarre dream that I
0: touched on. Well, and also remember, in every case, you have this question of cultural context, like. Finland's rake, granted, is a real tough sled, but I mean, if you live in Dublin for six months, not studying the rake, but simply living in Dublin for six months, I'm sure the wake is 20% easier, because the street names, the band names, the blog, all of this makes it fall into context, um... Like, one of the things that's so worrisome about Finnegan's Wake is we're in danger of losing it because we're in danger of losing the context. I mean, the really, the, like, the way to understand Ulysses is read, uh, the Irish news and world of those months, uh, surrounding Day and then you pick up on the sports teams, the political figures engaged in various brawls, uh, the news stories of the day, the horses and movie queens that were fascinating people in the moment. Uh, Bosch, it's a similar problem. We're in danger of losing the context. I mean, what looks one way to us is something to somebody else. The juxtaposition, like this question of the mouse in the glass tube, you know, it may be a clear reference to something that is culturally sl- slipping beyond us? How will uh, aspects of our culture look? How long will it be interpretable? Something like Michael Jackson, for example, how long will this remain coherent to historians of culture? They may just finally say well, these people were just fascinated with the bizarre and the outre. what they really mean is we can't understand it, so that's how we see it. For example, you know, there were these uh, ars memoria techniques in the late Renaissance where uh, orators, to memorize speeches, they would juxtapose grotesque uh, symbols So that, for instance, if you were giving a speech on the seven deadly sins, when you came to lust, you would have prepared in your mind, in an imaginary building that you were walking through, an image of a nun lifting her skirts or something. And the idea was that this image be as shocking as possible because it's supposed to be memorable. Uh... And so they created these bizarre juxtapositions of swords, weapons, people, genitalia, so forth and so on, which when we look at it, it's just... uh, You know, it looks like the creme de la creme of surrealism. A medieval person looking at it would realize that this is designed to recall a certain line of Chichero and would then proceed to deliver the line completely reading it rather than seeing it, you see. And when you cease to understand a work of art, uh, you don't read it anymore. You see it, and you're outside it because you have lost connection with the the integrated set of associations and cultural values that make it make sense. I mean, in a sense, Camille Paglia has attempted to do a kind of restoration of this for our culture. I mean, when you see these outlandish mythological scenes from the late Rococo, you know, you we are trained not to think, gee, there are a lot of tits in this picture. But it turns out, you know, when you cast your... when you actually get the context right, that the people for whom it was made, this was their major concern uh, on one level, that... Art is often what it appears to be. It's good to take children with you to art galleries. They cut through a great deal of art historical cant. I mean, I don't line up with Camille Paglia all the way, but I think that uh, it's a very refreshing kind of approach to art history rather than all this mumbo-jumbo and reverence. I mean, if you look at enough of this stuff, uh, you begin to get its real value... In uh, in uh, perspective, and uh, there are individual masterpieces that stand out. But the great broad river of art historical artifactria is uh, is uh, popular and um, kitschy. Largely has been for five hundred years. Well, maybe that's a decent uh, enough place to end it uh it hasn't been a continuous group uh people have come and go at their leisure which was how it was designed but I am grateful to Esselin for having me back and to the people who stuck with this through thick and thin and maybe I have an opportunity to do it again so thank you very much
1: you're listening to the psychedelic salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time well, I don't know about you, but he really got me to thinking more about what was taking place historically speaking when various works of art were created. For a long time now I've been thinking that what we call news and what will be called history many years from now, well, all of that noise is essentially the background music of our lives. And that's why I sometimes bring up what was going on in the world when some of Terence's talks were given. For example, during the month before Terrence gave the talk that we just heard, Bill Clinton became the first U.S. president to fire an FBI director. (laughs) Did you think about that when it happened again this year? Well, the summer of 1993 was also when the movie Jurassic Park came out. Now, I remember seeing that movie for the first time, but I had completely forgotten about Clinton firing Sessions. So, uh, I guess we know where my priorities were back then. But now I think I'm going to go back and re-listen to the last 20 minutes or so of this talk, because while I listened with you to the ending of it for the first time, well, he got me thinking about so many things that I'm sure I must have missed a few more ideas that I'd like to pursue. So, for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdalek Space. Be well, my friends.